I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. Today is an interview with Dr. Raymond Moody that I recorded a while back on psychomantiums. And the purpose of this interview was that University of Heaven was going to do a workshop, and this was going to be sort of your introduction to psychomantiums if you were interested in doing the workshop. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem that workshop is going to happen anytime soon. And I really wanted to share this information with you all because I thought it was a really cool concept and a perfect thing to talk about on Halloween. So if you're interested in learning more, you can go to University of Heaven or lifeafterlife.com and sign up for their newsletters and they will have information if they do do a workshop in the future. Otherwise, just enjoy this podcast. In 1975, Dr. Raymond Moody coined the term near-death experience in his book, Life After Life. For half a century, Dr. Moody has researched some of life's greatest mysteries. As both a PhD in philosophy and an MD, he has a strong interest in how medical realities intersect with the ineffable, ineffable realm of philosophy. In his multiple roles as author, professor, public speaker, and grief counselor, he has heard thousands of accounts of near-death, shared death, and after-death experiences. It is my humble honor to welcome Dr. Raymond Moody to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's so good to be with you again. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about psychomantiums, and this was completely a new concept for me when I spoke with Lisa a couple weeks ago. Most people have probably never heard of this before. I had certainly never heard of it before. What is a psychomantium? The most fascinating story of history, Amy, is the story of ancient Greek philosophy and how that all came about. And it's the kind of thing that if you wrote up what happened, and you submitted it to the National Enquirer, they would reject it because nobody is, could possibly believe this, okay? But it really didn't happen. And that is that, as everybody knows, that all of the modern knowledge and all came from the, the originators of it were the ancient Greek philosophers. And this story is just so phenomenal that to make it to bring this one aspect of it out. If we were in the time of Plato, for example, and you just went out on the street and you asked the average Greek person, what is a philosopher? What they would say is that a philosopher is a person who probes into things up in the air and down under the earth. In Plato's Apology, you might remember that was what Socrates said in his trial that people accused him of. Now, what this means was um, there was a character about 600 BCE whose name was Hermotimus, and Hermotimus had the ability to leave his body at will and go to different distant locations. And this, this knowledge, even Aristotle 280-something years later, mentions Hermotimus. So that shows this guy made a big splash. And so this Hermotimus got these early philosophers thinking about, well, 
you know, the mind is something obviously different from the body. If Hermotimus's mind can go some other place, then it's the, the you know, the, mind, the soul or the mind is something different from the body. And so then the, what that meant was flying when they said that they called them walkers on air. These were people who were experimenting with magical flight, like was shamanic it, things. Right. right? Is this like astral travel? Yeah, 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 that's right. And, and magical flight and so on. And then what they meant by call, like probing into things down in the earth was that these early philosophers were identified by their fellow people as evokers of the dead, because there were these institutions known as oracles of the dead. There were five major ones in the Greek world where you could go, and according to the historians like Herodotus, and it was like a lot of the historians write about these places, where you could go and you could go through some sort of procedure during which you would seem to see and converse with the spirit of your dead relative. Well, I, I studied these oracles of the dead because they are very important in the history of philosophy. Well, that was the extent of my knowledge up to about 1986 or 7, when I read in a classical journal that the most famous of these oracles of the dead, the one on the river Acheron, is directly below Albania in the northwest Greece province of Epiros. And I read that a classical scholar, Soterios Docorus, had gone to the place which Herodotus and a lot of these early writers say exactly where this place was. But since it couldn't be, nobody ever bothered to go up there and look for it. Think about that. So in the late 70s, he decided to go and see if he could find it. To make a long story short, he did, and they excavated it. And based on what the excavators found, I read the archaeological report, I immediately saw what it was they were doing. I, the archaeologists didn't pick up on this, but they what they found was this huge subterranean complex, all opening out into this uh, hallway where they had a big bronze cauldron, and this was down under the earth, and they found carbon marks on the walls of this subterranean chamber showing that there had been torches in there in antiquity, so that would create a dim light in this long hallway. And so what Dr. Dockerus and his fellow archaeologists decided was that this was fraud because they knew from a number of sources that they kept you down there for 29 days. There were dormitory rooms down there. It's like a huge complex underground. And so Dr. Dockerus thought, well, they had them down there for 29 days. They could feed them all kinds of information. And what he thought was happening, that the evokers of the dead would hide in the cauldron and act out the role of the spirits that the people came to see. But I didn't think so because I had a, I knew from independent research that all over the world there is a process called lacanomancy, and they still do this in the Middle East today. What they do is they take, for example, a silver bone, 
They'll highly polish it on the inside. They fill it with olive oil. And then in a dark room by candlelight, when you gaze into that optical depth, you see things. And, and you don't realize, it doesn't seem to be, it's not like you're making it up. It's they have an independent life of your own. You just see them. And so as soon as I read that detail, about, I knew that that's what they were doing. And so incidentally, I did, I'm not contradicting Dr. Thakaris because I think in uh, 94, probably, I went to Kanaliki uh, or to, to uh, where he lives, and I talked to him about my alternate take. And he immediately had the aha experience. Oh, I just never thought about that. And he showed me some other iconography that shows this. But basically, as soon as I read that detail, I knew it would work. So basically what I did was I set up a mirror chamber in my house, which consists of a wall mirror. It's about four by four feet on the wall. And I put it in a dark room with the, the, uh, walls of the little room painted, painted dark black and a comfortable easy chair about three feet in front of the mirror and a little light bulb behind with a dimmer switch so that the person sitting in the chair can adjust the strength of the light to make it comfortable for themselves in there. And then I just, just figured out just from reading about the ancient Greek way of doing this and from sort of putting it together with my knowledge of grief therapy, is basically I, I chose initially 10 people who were my graduate students of psychology. Most of them were a little older. They had already been out working as therapists or whatever. And then as word spread about this in the community, my med medical colleagues got interested in my psychological and psychiatric colleagues. And so the idea was just that we were going to check this out. And um, so I would bring them out one at a time. And uh, in the morning, it would be just like, hello, how are you? But then it would be like, tell me about this person who died and to get them to bring up the memories of the person and uh, just talk. And it used, what, last an hour or two until you, it's like, what are your best memories of this person? What are your not so good memories? What were the hangups? And just like you would do with anybody in grief counseling, right? And so then I would put them into this chamber and I, I thought that, my thought was that if I did 50 of these over, say, five years, that probably about five of them would have some sort of experience, and I would be able to write a little paper. That was my, but imagine my surprise when the very first person that went in there came out and saying, not just, yeah, I saw my father, but you know, that this was a real experience. That was not, I did not anticipate that because I thought these were psychologists, you know, and graduates. So I assume that- People are going into this chamber that you created, yeah. mm -hmm. looking into this mirror type yeah. thing, yeah. and having the experience of talking with their dead relative. Yes, and it's about, uh, it works. And about half of them, it works on the first time, unless unless you already have you know learned how to do the mirror gazing, then it's one hundred percent. But it's like just some first time 
somebody who's never done it before, you put them in there, it's about 50% on the first chance. But what it is, some people say that they actually see the spirit of the deceased person in the mirror. Other people will say, yeah, I saw the, the spirit in the mirror, but then the apparition actually comes out of the mirror. Full color, three dimensions, right, steps out. And does this and scare people? No, no. It's, it's, it's people are comforted by it. And um, some people say that they go into the mirror, like through the looking glass by Lewis Carroll, and that it's they see their dead relatives over on the other side of the mirror. Um, it, it's, it's just amazing. About 30% of them actually say they hear the audible voice of the deceased. Almost all the rest of them say that although they didn't hear a physical voice, they had a mind-to-mind -mind or heart-to-heart -heart communion with the person. About 15% of them get some sort of psychokinetic effect, like being hugged. Um, and, and they interpret it to be a real event. That, to me, is the hardest. I mean, I just was not anticipating that. And this is really healing and helpful for it grief. It is. And I, I really, I'll tell you the truth, Amy, I don't have a noble purpose for my work. I, what drives me is curiosity. And I really was not anticipating that it would be a therapeutic modality, but it turned out to be. And there, there have been actually quite a number of people who have reproduced this now and who, um, do it as a practice, yeah. And how does that differ from like a medium's work? Well, and I don't know much about mediumship, but I know that by definition, there's an intermediary, right? Whereas in the Antion experience, the person sees the, the deceased person or talks to them for themselves. Mm -hmm. And all kinds of wacky effects like you know, I assumed that it would be anybody who saw somebody, it would be the person they prepared to see, right? But it's not. In about one quarter of the cases, it's some other deceased person that you knew rather than or in addition to the person you set out to see. It's so like this person on I mentioned. Yeah, so sure. the intention isn't necessarily going to be the person who comes. No, uh -uh. And do and they come with like messages of love or like, you know, I'm sorry that I treated you this way or that I Some of it is that way. Yeah. And it's always, it's always goes to the relationship. And um, it's really startling to see it because it's, um, it was so different from what I had expected. I, I just, uh, how does, it, it's astonishing. I um, there was a woman named Annette Childs, I believe her name is, who um, she did a study on the after effects of psychomantion visits and interviewed people as long as five years after they had had their experiences in psychomantion. And what she found was that even after that length of time, five years, people still look back on this is a very meaningful experience. And I've heard from people like too that I did 20 something years ago. Sometimes I, you know, they call back and say, wow, this was really meaningful to me.
So why do you think this isn't more mainstream? Because I think, you know, when people say to me, why aren't you just a medium? Mm. My response is that I think it's so much more powerful, sort of like how Brian Weiss practices, right? Like he doesn't just tell people what happened in their past life. He guides them through their past life. Mm-hmm. There's, so, there's so much power in having that experience yourself. So why are more people not doing this to deal with grief or to connect? I don't know about same curiosity. I, I don't know. I, and, and another thing is the cultural aspect of it. This was very well known in the United States up to about 1915. I can document it very well. There were all kinds of iconography. It's like postcards, you know, that would show this, the the people by candlelight gazing into the mirror and the spirit coming out and so on. Um, And what I think, and I just, this is speculation, but what happened around 1915 that made this go away? My guess is the radio. You know, in the in the Victorian era, people played with, they did activities together in the drawing room, right? But then when radio came along and then TV, people were focused on the radio or the TV, right? And not interacting. And, and now think, God, God knows how far we've gotten from, from right. that, right? But I think that um, that's one factor. And then another thing is... Um, And the kind of field that you and I are in, one of the great dangers is that people become passive. That basically what they want is for us to tell them inspiring stories. And if it gets down to something that requires effort, you know, and this is not something that responds very very easily to wishful thinking. I mean, to do a psychomantion visit, you have to go through a procedure. And it's, uh, and people would come to my house at 10 o'clock in the morning. Well, then they go through the visit. Then you, when you bring them out of the chamber, you have to talk to them and deep, you know, like the emotions and let that all. So this is a, grueling all-day process Mm. and it doesn't fit into the new age sort of model which is just go and have a good time and get that california look in your eyes and wear the the crystals around your neck but this actually requires some kind of um you know application and i think that might be in this immediate gratification world people may not want so much to spend the time building a mirror chamber. But it sounds a little bit like um, what people are doing with microdosing psychedelics in some way, except that you're not, except that you're not taking anything to have this experience. You're just having. That's right. I um, am familiar with marijuana, but generally speaking, I have not, because I just, I bet you too, Amy, I mean, I can go all kinds of places. I don't need a, I mean, it, your mind is an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, I was, we were talking earlier in an earlier program about this period of life of the late 30s and early 40s and the transformation you go through. And um, it's, um, 
I, I went through that when I was in my 40s. I had two doctoral degrees, get this, before I was 31, plus three of those years I've been a philosophy professor. So at you and I station in life now in our age and our what we do, we can realize that there was something very bad, wrong about somebody with somebody who would have two doctoral degrees plus three years of teaching before age 31, right? And it was true. I, my whole life was my nose in a book. And I listened to a lot of people with these experiences, but the first that I really began to have any experiential exposure to this was when I was in my own middle-life crisis, I guess, in my early 40s. So if people want to learn more about this, mm -hmm. how can they do that? Well, Lisa Smart and I are having a um, a workshop on the air on this on our University of Heaven and on uh, how to do this. And, and I forgot exactly when it's coming up, but we'll have all that information on the website, theuniversityofheaven.com. And we're we're going to do a um, a sort of uh, internet webinar on how to do it. So you're going to be teaching people specifically to design their own. That's right. It's not that much work, really. I mean, it's uh, I'm not mechanical at all. It's just a matter of putting up a mirror and excluding the light from the room and finding a comfortable chair. Most of the the operative part of it is the process of going through and you know talking about your deceased loved ones and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something people can do on their own. They don't need like a therapist. They can, they can. You definitely don't need a therapist, but I would recommend not doing it yourself um, and, and not because there's any danger, but because I just know from experience that in a way you can't be prepared for this. I, I had heard maybe a dozen people who I'd taken through it before I did it myself, and I just... Holy mackerel, in the reality, I, oh, I mean, I saw my grandmother. That's all I can say. You know, I, I saw my grandmother. I heard her. I felt her presence. And um, so this is, it really does affect people. So what I would say is, yes, you can do this at home, but have a person there with you. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that, you need to have somebody to ask you the questions about your dead relative because generally speaking, most people, if they're just doing it by themselves, they will stick to all the good things and the happy. And then you need somebody there to say, well, what were some of the hangups in the relationship and tough spots and to sort of balance it out and so that you can have somebody there to talk about, about it with. So it's... Um, because your sister is not going to be appreciate getting a call from at 11.30 at night saying, I just went into a mirror room and I talked to mom. And she, you know, I mean, my point is it's, it's good that people get so excited about this when it happens yeah. that you need to have somebody to talk about it with. I, I might do this. I might take yeah. it to because this is good for me. Yeah, it's, you might find it useful in your practice. I don't know if you know... Um, Oh, I forgot. Uh, Arthur Hastings. Mm 
Uh, you know, Arthur was a friend of mine. He was the director of the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in Palo Alto. And they sent some people out in 1994 to learn how to do this from me. And then they incorporated it into their psychotherapy training programs. So this is, um, it's very effective for grief. It really is. Thank you so much to Dr. Raymond Moody for taking the time to record this episode with me. And I recorded this episode a while back, so if you are interested in learning more, head on over to the universityofheaven.com. They may be planning some upcoming workshops, however, that is unclear at this point, but if you sign up for their newsletter, you will get any information on that. Also, I wanted to let you know that on Monday there will be a really itty bitty mini podcast. I was interviewing someone for an upcoming podcast who had the experience of doing the psychomantium with Raymond Moody. So we're going to tell her story on Monday, just a really small episode for you all to hear. So stay tuned for that and have a happy Halloween. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? curious about what comes next and what it all means, you can subscribe on iTunes. Just go to podcasts and find life, death, and the space between and hit subscribe. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Ask me any questions you might have. Let me know what else you'd love to hear about or just share your story. I can't wait to hear from you.